Hello and welcome back to Freedom Machines with Freddie Dobbs. So glad, so glad I went out for a ride yesterday because it was beautiful weather, blue sky yesterday and today just constant either heavy rain or drizzle and grey and cold all day. It was just, just glorious yesterday. It may only have been seven degrees, but I picked out a little spot in the middle of the countryside in, in England, just completely by itself with, at least on Google Maps, no looks of any kind of big built up areas at all and just one road to get to this little area to explore. And I found this area I'd never been to before. Went out on the Bonneville, Monarch on the back. And it was like going back probably 200 years or so just riding along these old country lanes with no cars or anything around, the occasional church just situated on the side of a road, a very flat landscape, and you could just pick going left, right, or straight on at each crossroads, but no road markings or anything like that. You just pootle along, decide where you want to head off to next. And it was, it was a magical, magical day really did feel like I was back in time. Beautiful simplicity. Really, the roads were no bigger than being able to fit, in modern day terms, one and a half cars or something like that. But there's no issue at all because there's just no one around. And 800-year-old pubs every so often, 900-year-old churches, and just the occasional beautiful farmhouse, pig farming. Just, oh, just glorious. It's what it's all about. And wrapping up warm, genuinely enjoyable, even in the winter. It's fantastic. Right, I begin. I've got a lot of really interesting uh, comments, messages coming in. This is a good one. Have a listen to this. I begin with Steve in the US. Freddie, I was listening to your last podcast and I was wondering why you seem so amazed that Harley Davidson ranks so high in reliability. I have a 1998 Harley-Davidson Springer Softail. I bought it eight years ago with only 2,000 miles on it. Now it's got 54,000 miles on the clock. I ride it to work around 60 mile round trip every day if the weather permits. I have only replaced tires, a battery, plugs, brakes and a coil. That's it. If they made a bridge from the US to England, it would make it with no problem. And being its 25th year on the road, I can only imagine how much better the newer models must be. I'd also like to add, I don't know how much sports desire over in Europe, but here you can get one with low miles for under $4,000. Why would anyone buy a 350 Enfield when you can get an 883 or a 1200 Sportster for less and sell it for what you paid for it? Harleys don't lose value, ever. Steve, Steve, I actually put this, this email you sent me to the top of the podcast this week because it's fascinating hearing an American's take on Harleys. In Europe, and again, I don't want to speak for everyone, so any Europeans jump in here and tell me if I'm right or wrong, if you feel strongly either way. In Europe... It's not that Harleys have a reputation of being unreliable, because they don't, but they have a reputation of being incredibly expensive to buy and extremely expensive to maintain. That's both parts and servicing. Um, They also have a reputation for, and this may not be 
completely fair, but a reputation that you must cosset them, you must look after them, they must be wrapped up in the winter, that they, they would never be a winter hack. You'd never ever see a winter hack as a Harley. Harleys are more seen here as, yes, you may go on a tour to Europe if you've got a road king, but they're, they're almost seen, and again, I welcome people to jump in, as a, a Sunday afternoon ride. It's, it's not common that you see a street glide, for example, commuting to work um, on a consistent basis, you know, maybe for a few nice days in the year. Um, so they, they do have a... They don't have a reputation of unreliability. They don't specifically have a reputation for being reliable, but I'm sure they have a fairly decent reputation of it. But in, the, in America, I'm sure, Steve, it's very different. The reason I like the idea of Harleys in America, well, I like the idea of them anywhere, but especially America, you use them out in America as genuine modes of transport. And from what I've heard from American listeners, Harley-Davidson maintenance and repairs are extremely reasonable over in the US. It's not seen as a ridiculously expensive thing over in the US. Plus, dealerships in the US for Harley-Davidson's are absolutely everywhere. You're never, you're never more than a few miles, probably, from someone who would know how to pretty much rebuild a Harley-Davidson engine or know a friend of a friend who's got the exact part that you may need. They're proper modes of transport there, whereas a lot of the time in, in Europe, they're a bit of a, a status symbol, yes, but a real dream machine that, with that dream machine level, comes an element of, with the price involved in it and the maintenance costs, you know, you have to be a bit careful where and when you use it. Uh, I welcome other people chiming in there, but Steve, it's fascinating to hear your thoughts on it. And I have heard of some high mileage uh, Harley Davidsons, but the interesting thing is, Steve, mainly, I admit, probably mainly Europeans were jumping in on this. Around about six months ago, I did a quick, a quick poll on Instagram and I asked, what's the highest mileage motorcycle that you've got? And out of the top 10, I think to the very best of my knowledge, there wasn't one Harley Davidson in the top 10 not one. I was a bit surprised at that because I, you know, there are people from the US who follow along on Insta as well. So I was surprised that there wasn't some mammoth mileage street glide or something like that. Um, but again, anyone who wants to jump in on that, I'll share your thoughts next week. And Steve, it's fantastic hearing from you. I should say I'm a gigantic Harley fan and I've always toyed with the idea of getting one. And if I did get one, I, uh, yeah. I would love to rack up some serious mileage on it because that's what they're designed for. And with your point regarding the Royal Enfields, yeah, the reason, Steve, that people will go for a Royal Enfield over a Harley Sportster is perceived gigantic savings in running costs. They're, they're way, they get way more miles per gallon, Royal Enfields. You also, if they're new, you get the warranty and a perceived element of them being much, much cheaper to maintain. The price of parts, hugely cheaper. And of course, paying for servicing much cheaper for the Royal Enfields. It's fascinating the differences, the US and Europe. So thank you for that, Steve. I'm moving on. Freddie, there are plenty of podcasts, YouTube videos uh, and articles about motorcycles and modern classics for the shorter rider. But there isn't a lot out there to help guide someone over six foot. 
I'm 6'3 and ride a Royal Enfield Classic 500 and I just about get away with it. A lot of other modern classics are just too low for me, including most modern Bonnevilles, R9T, most Ducati Scramblers. The ones that are tall enough are in what I'd call an unattainable price point of the Scrambler 1200 XC and XC for Triumph. Any ideas on an £8,000 tall modern classic bike that's ULES compliant? ULES uh, is the, the emissions restrictions for London. So in essence, let's say something from 2008 onwards will pass, anything older won't pass. Right, I'm so sorry I didn't save your name, but this is a really interesting question that I do not get asked a lot. I've come up with three. It's not that all of them have specifically high seat heights, because I did struggle with that, but they're all physically big bikes. With big engine, chunky physically bikes, um, and probably slightly higher seat heights than some of their smaller engine counterparts. I've come up with three. The first one is the Triumph T120 with a king and queen seat. And the reason I say with a king and queen seat, after taking off my king and queen seat from Triumph, which is the huge touring seat, like a sofa, like a Harley Davidson seat, after taking that off and putting on my skinny seat, it must have dropped the seat height by about three centimeters. I then put it back on and my legs were at a much more nice, natural angle. Uh, before I was almost at right angles with my legs touching the floor and then the king and queen seat raised it. So number one, Triumph T120 with a king and queen seat. You can get those for 6,000 pounds. I really think that will suit you well. Next up, Honda CB1100. Again, they've got a beautiful chunky seat with that big 1100cc engine. And just from looks wise, I think it will be a decent seat height as well. And the final one I'm going to give you is, now this is very specific, so get a pen and paper ready if you need it. The Yamaha XJR1300, but I would say, take a look at, you can get them for £4,000. They look brilliant, huge 1300cc engine. But a little tip from me, if you get one 2016 or older, that's the newly updated version and it looks like a seriously good bike. It's also really underappreciated. Massive engine, almost cafe racer in looks and you can get them for six and a half or six thousand nine hundred pounds so well within budget or if you want the slightly older model from about 2008 onwards very different look but still both big big beasts of bikes and I think you'll be very happy with either of those as well let me know how you get on I move on from Matt Freddie, hope you're well. I hugely agree with you regarding your disappointment with the Honda Hornet for its lack of retro character. And I couldn't believe what I was seeing when I first saw the new Hornet. It's about as middle of the road and safe as Honda could possibly have been. And honestly, I can see it really appealing to anyone. Okay, I'm sure you meant I can't see it really appealing to everyone. So I'm going to guess you missed out the T. But, uh, but honestly, I can't see it really appealing to anyone. However... The rumoured new Honda GB750 looks fantastic. And if this one comes to fruition, I could see it being a huge success and competing with the Enfields, Bonneville's, Kawasaki Z-Range. Thank you, Matt. Okay, Matt. This is interesting. I, I'll be completely honest. I did not know about this Honda. I'm just Googling it. Honda GB750. 
Okay, well, thank you for this, Matt. This is fascinating. Five days ago, rideapart.com, after the Hornet and the Transalp, is Honda working on a GB750? <sighs> oh, that's quite nice. Hmm. Wow. Okay, let me try and describe this. Um, modern classic in looks. Lovely looking bike, single headlight, quite short and chunky with a, an all black engine. Hondas are not known now since the CB1100 has gone for the most beautiful engines. And this doesn't have the most beautiful engine in the world, although it's not as ugly as some Honda engines. A lovely classic retro seat. It's a really nice looking thing. Think Honda's take on a Triumph Bonneville, or think a slightly more modern version of the Honda CB1100, well, that's a lovely looking thing. And I'd consider that, you know, they've got the GB350 out in Japan, but this is a lovely bike and this will sell. This will sell without question. Huge fan of that, Matt. Thank you for raising my attention to that. You're right, that will be, if they get it right price-wise, and actually, to be fair to Honda, they often price competitively-ish. If they get that right, you're bang on, Matt. That's a serious competitor for the Bonnevilles. It'll come in more than the Enfields, I'm sure, but that'll be a competitor for the Bonnevilles, definitely. It's also better looking, in my eyes, than the Kawasaki Z650. So it'll be interesting where it prices. I move on from Steve. Freddie, as you mentioned at the end uh, that you like to keep your bikes, I feel personally that PCPs are designed for those who like switching their bikes. In saying that, I intend to keep my bike and I got a PCP deal. I bought a pre-registered, so brand new, Yamaha XSR 700 for circa £6,000, put £2,500 deposit down and I'm paying £43 a month for 48 months. It's completely true, Steve, you're right. These PCP deals, and I think I've got some other people uh, who messaged me about this, so I may feed back to this. These PCP deals, yes, you're, you may pay a bit more, but they allow you to go and get your dream bike. Just 43 pounds a month with a two and a half K deposit. Makes a lot of sense. Thank you, Steve. I move on. Freddie, I passed my A2 license and I'm looking for my first bike. I'm in France, so even if I'm 30 years old, I'll be restricted to a maximum 47 horsepower for two years. It'll be my second backup and pleasure vehicle, so I do not want to pay too much for it. I'm mostly interested in big touring bikes that can get me anywhere comfortably with large storage compartments that can handle stuff needed to spend a few days far from home. I cannot find any. The only decent candidate I could find, do you know any others, is the Honda, I think they say Duville, Duville, I think, 650, that's decently priced but rarely found in its A2 compatible variant and thus expensive for what it is. There are, however, plenty of other 2000 to 2010 good candidates, well-priced and reliable, BMW K, BMW R, Honda Duville 700, Honda Pan-European, etc., that I would happily buy, but they're just out of reach for an A2 license holder. I might end up waiting for the end of my A2 restricted license before buying a bike. 
I just don't want the hassle of buying and selling a temporary, non-desirable motorcycle. That A2 thing just serves as a way to make business at the expense of consumer. Well done, EU. Cheers, Aaron. Aaron, that, that last point is a really interesting one. It just serves to make business at the expense of the consumer. Well done to the EU. It's a really interesting point because it does make our life, our lives, bikers, incredibly difficult. Really very, very difficult when you're restricted for two years, like you are in France, from getting anything over a 47 horsepower bike. It, it opens up a whole other sector within biking. Bikes under 47 horsepower that you can get so you're legally allowed to ride on an A2 license. I found this really difficult, Aaron. Finding a bike, finding a, a sports tour, a big touring bike that can actually hit, hit the mark. I spent about half an hour looking and, and I haven't come up with anything definitive. So before I come up with, with what I've found, Aaron, let me give a shout out here. Anyone who knows of a, a, a fairly priced sports tourer, or I'm going to chuck an adventure bike because a lot of the time the lines are so blurred between adventure bike and sports tourer. A, a big bike, in essence, that can hold panniers and take a lot of stuff, and it's 47, 47 horsepower or less. Not too expensive at all. If you're looking at a 650 Duraville, let's say something like up to 4K, maybe two to four thousand pounds. What is there? Please, someone let me know and share your thoughts on it. The only ones Aaron I could find. A bike that I love that I've tested and, and enjoyed a lot. The Royal Enfield Himalayan. You can get loads of luggage on it. I think it looks brilliant. It's got that stripped back utilitarian style. And I think, if I'm right, you can probably pick those up for top of my head, two and a half thousand pounds now. Let me just see what they are. While I'm looking, okay, let's type it in. I say while I'm looking, I, I cannot do two things at once. So I won't start talking about something else. Royal Enfield, Himalayan. Okay, these are way below the 47 horsepower. These are 20-ish horsepower, something like that. And you may find that too little, Aaron. Yeah, 2,900 easily. And there's one here for sale, 2,900 pounds. 1,200 pounds in optional extras with two side panniers and a big top box as well. Look, you can travel the world on that, but it's slow on motorways. And if you want to do a lot of touring, I may have to discount that even though I've said it because that is not going to be a relaxing motorway cruiser. Whereas you can easily get 47 horsepower bikes like the Royal Enfield Interceptor that will cruise on motorways all day with no issue at all. I found one other, Aaron. It's a brand new model, so it may be too much. It's the Benelli TRK 502. Now, Benelli is a brand that I think has recently, recently-ish come back. And I think the Benelli, one of the Benelli's is now Italy's best-selling motorcycle. So don't immediately discount it because, for example, like me, you don't know much about it. But this is a 47, 
47 horsepower bike, so straight out of the box it's A2 compliant, it's 500cc, so that power will be plenty enough for motorways and you'll be able to have panniers on either side of it. It comes in new in the UK at £6,300 and let me just see if I can, if I can quickly see the price they go for used, just to give you a bit of an idea. Okay, so I've got here motorbikes make, just refresh this. Okay, let me open up a new page because Auto Trader is being funny. Okay, make Benelli. How many are there? Benelli, 297 Benellis, and it's the T. RK502, there are 27. Now, it is more of an adventure bike, Aaron, but the, the line is so blurred between the two. This will do everything that a sports tour will do, in essence. You can pick one of these up. Three-year-old Benelli TRK for £3,900. And that's, bear in mind, on Auto Trader. You'll be able to get it cheaper on Facebook Marketplace for a private seller. My guess, you'll be able to get one for around about £3,500. They're a decent-looking bike, actually. They really are. They're not bad at all. And you can kit it out on a pannier, if I, with panniers. If I had Saren, that's my pick. Benelli TRK. Out of the box A2, you don't need to do anything to it. You pick it up, you buy it, get one used with panniers so you'll save money on that. And you've got your bike there ready that I think will do you well. I move on. Freddie, I've been interested in the topics discussing buying your dream bike and also options for buying a new bike and whether to save up for the finance. I thought I'd give you my view, having just gone through this when I bought my BMW R1200 GS Adventure in 2018. I just fell in love with the GS Adventure, its versatility, how it could do anything I wanted all in one bike, and it opened up where I could go on a bike. The issue, it was £18,000, way more than I had ever comprehended paying for a bike. So I started looking around and found the exact colour, fully loaded, with every option, brand new, and with an offer including full luggage and sat-nav included, worth around £2,000, accessories that I would, would have had to buy otherwise. My chosen option was to go via PCP Finance. My thoughts were that this gave me less of a commitment compared to a loan for the full amount, or what realistically would have been around four to five years to save up for the bike to pay outright. I paid around £3,000 in interest, which is a lot, but if I factor in the £2,000 accessories included and that an equivalent bike today has gone up by two thousand pounds if I'd saved up the amount to buy it then I think it was the right option and in the past four years I've done trips away with my dad weekends away with my partner who comes pillion as it's comfortable as well as lots of riding and exploring on my own making memories I otherwise wouldn't have done I think sometimes there's more of a consideration than just the money as long as it doesn't overstretch you financially 
and I since paid off the PCP, paid it off at the end in cash, and I've saved while I was having the bike to use. So overall, it worked out very well for me. Ashley. You know what, Ashley, after reading that, sorry, I just have a sip of coffee. After reading that, Ashley, I mean this, I'm not just saying it, hand on heart. You've actually inspired me because your angle at coming, uh, coming at this from with regards to finance, you're right. You only live once. And if you want a specific bike, as the Italians say, Cedomani, there's always tomorrow. How many times have I done it? For. There's always tomorrow. Ah, oh, tomorrow I'll do this, tomorrow I'll do that. Next year I'll get a Harley. Guess what? It never ends up coming. Sometimes you do just have to bite the bullet and go out and get it. You made a few really, really interesting points here. Apart from the overall feel of you only live once, which I think is fantastic. You're right. You do only live once. If you want to get a nice bike, go out and get a nice bike because you do. As long as it's not overstretching you ridiculously where you're, I don't know, not going on holiday, or you're struggling to buy, I don't know, Sainsbury's finest pasta or something like that, then does it really matter? Just go out there and spend the extra bit of money or spend the money full stop and go and get the dream bike. Interesting points you make I want to highlight here. You went out and you bought the bike. You've made memories with that bike that you may not have made otherwise had you not gone out and bought it. Memories are priceless. Time is priceless. There's nothing more important than time. And if Ashley would have waited for two years to go and buy that bike, well, well, there's two years worth of living gone, potentially. It's a great way to look at it. Another point. Ashley's gone out and bought his bike two years ago, for example, or four years ago. It's gone up now £2,000. Am I pushing it too much to say that Ashley's actually saved himself £2,000 because of the price of everything, of course, goes up? I like that argument. Ashley, thank you for that. You've inspired me. I'm easily led astray, I'll be honest with you. And I, I may actually get on some, some loan calculators and things after this, just out of curiosity, because you're the second person now who said a similar thing. Ashley, thank you. I'm moving on to Alex. Freddie, RE, the Moto Guzzi versus Triumph 1200 Scrambler choice. You mentioned that the Triumph Scrambler as being a naked adventure bike, but surely that defeats the object. As your friend Danny was keen to point out, his KTM offered fantastic protection against buffeting and bad weather, extending his range, reducing his fatigue and increasing the number of days he'd go out for a ride. If you strip all of that back, as Triumph have done with the Scrambler, then you may as well go the whole hog and just buy a T120, not have to worry about the tippy-toeing at the lights, and enjoy the wind in your face, classic experience for what it is. And of course, you can hang a pannier off each side. Alex. Alex, I agree. It's funny, I've tried out the Triumph Scrambler 1200XC. It's a seriously impressive machine. But I do think uh, that marketing it as a naked adventure bike probably, maybe, does almost detract from it a bit. Um, probably a gigantic scrambler is a better way to look at it, which is what it is, but it's been marketed often as a naked adventure bike. And I am with you, Alex. 
I do prefer a slightly lower seat height and those, those maybe our six foot three friend earlier will be absolutely fine on these. I mean, it will be a dream for him to get one of those. But, you know, for anyone around about the six foot ish mark and, and shorter, they can be seriously high. The XC and the XC scramblers, really some of the highest seat heights I've experienced. The XE seat height, I believe, is even higher than the XC. I remember sitting on one in a showroom about three years ago, Tramp Scrambler 1200 XE. I think I was on my tiptoes. I'm six foot one with uh, probably longer legs than a six foot one person, maybe a, a shorter body because my legs are decently long and I was on tiptoes. It was intimidating. It really was. Um, so the the Triumph Scramblers, the big ones, the 1200s, they do sit in a, a slightly funny area. You have to really want one of those because they are compromised in most areas. They're incredibly cool, but they're not good adventure bikes because of the pannier situation. They, uh, they don't quite have the feel on the road because of the high suspension. Um, yeah, so, so there's a lot of areas of compromise. They're not perfect in any area, but you've got that, that cool vibe, that excitement level with it that does rein it back in a bit and give it some extra points. Thank you for sharing that, Alex. I'm moving on to Chris. Freddie, following your question in the most recent episode regarding buying bikes on finance, I'll preface this by saying I never buy bikes that are even remotely new. Usually, my bikes are at least older than 20 years old. However, after buying my bikes outright and having a few thousand tied up in them, I discovered that I can buy them on 0% APR credit card, often allowing me to own them for only the cost of maintenance, insurance and tax for 24 to 36 months. Usually, after 18 months, I've had my fix of the bike and sell it, cancel the card and get a new one with a fresh interest-free period. All this costs is 1% of the card's balance per month, which I get back upon selling the bike. I expect this doesn't work for newer bikes, as they will depreciate significantly more than vintage motorcycles. But for anyone who considers buying an older bike on finance, Maybe consider this too. Thank you, Chris, for highlighting this. I've had a few people in the past saying exactly this. 0% credit cards. I've just had, for example, Barclays, without me asking. Barclays sent me a letter through in the post saying, Freddie, we're upping your credit limit to £5,000 on your credit card. £5,000 limit. I've never had such a big limit. You can, you can take your pick of used 20-year-old motorcycles under £5,000. You can take your pick under £3,000. But get a 0% credit card. Enjoy the classic bike, because any 20-year-old bike isn't going to drop a penny from where it is now. I always find, I think, probably 15-year-old uh, motorcycles. Once it hits the 15-year-old mark, it's never going to drop another penny. And you've got depreciation-proof biking where you don't have to save a penny for the bike because you've got 0% interest-free credit card. So there's no point paying a big lump sum. You may as well just make the most of that credit card. You sell it after a year or two. You haven't lost a penny on the bike. You've paid almost no interest at all on the credit card. And you've enjoyed a bike 
completely free. I'm completely free. Just, just using, we're spending a bit of money on maintenance. I mean, it's about the most, when you put it like that, the, the most no-brainer kind of riding that I've ever heard of. Thank you, Chris. I move on. Neil, Freddie. I've just listened to your latest podcast and would like to comment on the article about the guy who wants to trade his uh, trade in his train ticket for a bike. Although you can get a reasonable bike for the cost of that ticket, you still have to factor in the running costs of the bike, the insurance, the tax, servicing and fuel, depending on his mileage. That could potentially add, a, add up to around about £2,000 a year. If £4,500 is his total budget, then this would need taking into consideration and would mean a cheaper bike. Yeah, Neil, I can't uh, argue with that at all. I'm curious on that, Neil, because, and Neil and everyone, that leads me quite nicely onto a point I would like to make. Someone just messaged me a couple of days ago and they said, Freddie, would you recommend the Bonneville as, uh, as a a genuinely good bike to own. And I said, yes, especially now I realized all of those starting issues were because of the battery. Take that into account. I think I've just tallied it up. And since owning the Bonneville, I think it's cost me in maintenance, repairs and servicing, not including tires, uh, not including tires. It's cost me 45 pounds a year on average to run the Bonneville, £45 a year. And a lot of you won't believe this. My Michelin Road Classic tyres are now on 18,000 miles. 18,000 miles on one set of tyres. It's almost unthinkable. I actually don't quite understand it. I have, I have to keep double checking when I bought them just to have a look and see. My, my insurance on the Bonneville is about £80 a year. The tax is around about is it £100 a year? Maybe, maybe £80 a year, 80 to £100 a year or something. So I spend, let's say tax, I can't remember, let's say it's 100 let's say insurance is 80 that's 180 maintenance 45 It's only about £225, not including fuel, of course, a year that I spend on looking after my Bonneville. Really is unbelievably cheap, uh, that simple little bike. So I'm hoping, um, I'm hoping very possibly our friend who who's considering getting the the adventure bike um or the adventure bike the commuter bike in replacement to the train ticket may be able to have lower annual costs although every bike's different and everyone everyone's position is different so i'd be fascinated to hear from anyone who's got a ludicrously expensive bike to run on an annual basis or a ludicrously cheap one either end of the spectrum be fascinating to hear from you so let me know and neil thank you so much for that because it's a it's a very relevant point you make moving on freddie i did my full bike test five years ago and since then i've been riding my vintage 60 year old lambretta scooter but I recently bought a Honda CBR 600 FI sports bike and I mentioned it's taking a while to get used to the handling and riding it generally. Two extremes of bike I know. I wanted to let your listeners know about what a fantastic idea it is to join your local group of IAM, Institute of Advanced Motorcyclists. This has really opened my eyes to how you should ride a bike properly and safely, much more so than the basic test. You pay £170 to join the IAM and they allocate you to your local IAM group. You then 
Go along, in my case on a Saturday morning, and meet your allocated mentor, a rider who has done his IAM test already. You then go on regular rides, followed by your mentor, who helps you analyse your riding. How safe? Did you make good progress? How did you position yourself on the road? How did you give, receive information, correct use of observation, speed, gears? There's a process you follow, etc., etc. This is really helping me to become a better and safer rider, and it's great fun. Eventually, depending on progress, you take your full IAM observed motorbike test. So £170 is extremely good value. Additionally, as well as this group gives you a ready-made group of biker-friendly, uh, of friendly bikers to ride with as they often do social rides and trips. Plus, you have a coffee before going on any ride. Please recommend to your listeners, there are some fantastic YouTubers such as Reg Local, who show what is entailed in a, uh, in a riding to the IAM standard slash IAM test. And obviously Google IAM for the full information. Regards, Howard. Thank you, Howard. One of my friends, he did this and he had a similarly positive experience to you. I remember going out for a ride with my friend after he'd done this, um, this IAM test and he immediately picked, picked me up on many, many points of my atrocious riding just after about, I think, 20 minutes or so he was riding behind me. I was surprised because I didn't think this friend of mine, it's something that he would have done, the IAM. He did it and he loved it and he said, even though he's, he's one of the best riders I know actually, he said it was eye-openingly useful and he learned a huge amount. He said it's a genuinely useful thing to do. And he said he's a much better rider because of it. And the social side as well as Howard mentions, I mean, it goes hand in hand with biking. That's what biking's all about. So it's fantastic that this is also a way for, for bikers to connect, grab a coffee, go for a little ride. And if they arrange tours as well, jump on board with a group of like-minded bikers. It's the fantastic life of biking. I love everything about it. Thank you, Howard. Moving on. Uh, let's end on this one. JB, you're the last one. JB in Scotland. Freddie, as you know, I sold my mighty Rocket 3R and I'm now seeking my zone, the new next or the next bike, the perfect level of performance, feel, and oral delight that gives me that grin factor. Tantalizes the senses, but without the crazy 165 horsepower of the rocket. In a way, over the years, I had to go up the power range to then figure out where that zone, that sweet spot is. For me, it was probably between 80 to 130 horsepower from a lazy big capacity bike to that sound and feel of the of the decel. Apologies, uh, maybe a typo or I don't know that word. And the high gear roll uh, on uh, in between flowing corners through a leafy forest, up in the hills, through that night tunnel, through that night tunnel or next to a river. That's my zone. Curiously, I've not owned an inline four since my frenetic two-stroke Suzuki RG125 uh, RG back in the early 90s. Inline fours never appealed as they often deliver their thrills high up in the rev range. Since my Gamma, 
I've never been a sport boy. To me, they always sounded smooth but buzzy and a bit flat when going at real world speeds. But I've overlooked the last of the air-cooled bruisers, the Honda CB1100RS, one you've mentioned many a time but haven't tested as far as I recall. One which has an, on, uh, an offbeat firing order, classic cafe looks, a detuned superbike motor from the 80s, creamy delivery and that big four character of old uh, but with modern electronics. They were being made up to 2020 and low mile examples can be found for about £2,000 cheaper than the equivalent T120. To me, the CB, the big CB looks every bit the perfect classic tourer, but grunty and sporty enough to enjoy the twisties. Once I've added a, a small fly screen and my side bags. So what do you think? And what's your zone? JB, I'm, I'm winding this straight back to... Uh, to our, uh, our messenger from earlier on, the, the six foot three rider, you're bang on, you're bang on with this because this is a big bruiser of a bike and someone at six foot three like our earlier messenger, it, it will be a good bike for them, I'm sure of it because of the, the sheer size of it. And I also did not know that it's a detuned superbike motor. JB, I really do think that this, the Honda CB1100 RS, sorry, I'll add the RS on there as well because you're right. I really do think that this is a classic in the waiting. It's always been underappreciated, this bike. Everyone says the Triumph Bonneville T120. But this, let, let me just get this up now. Honda CB1100 RS. Let's just get this up. Motorcycle news. I just want to see a review of this. Yeah, here you go. This is the funny thing. It looks unbelievably good, this bike. Really, as JB says, as good as any other bike. I've mentioned it so many times on the podcast. For me, this is a bike that's going to be going up in value. Even though they only stopped making 2021, at least the older models, they've bottomed out. They're not going to get any cheaper at all. I honestly believe... In years to come, we won't believe how, how low these prices have dropped. MCN gave it three out of five stars, whereas owner's rating on MCN gave it 4.9 out of five. And guess what? Owner's reliability ratings, well, what else are you going to expect? Because it's a Honda. Five out of five. Not 4.9 out of five, five out of five. Where else are you going to hear that type of stuff? Just looking at people's, people's replies to this or people's input, uh, past and present owners, Honda CB1100RS, five out of five, annual servicing, £150. Brilliant, exclamation, exclamation. Uh, annual servicing costs £100, five out of five stars. Every single thing, five stars. Final one, five out of five stars. Old, cool, old school air-cooled bike with modern touches. Annual servicing costs £40. Comfortable with good riding position. Silky smooth engine, great power delivery. Nicely built. Side panels are metal, not plastic. Quite heavy, which makes it very planted. Wouldn't recommend to people five... Oh, would recommend to people five foot six and over. I thought I was going to say wouldn't. It, it's universally unbelievably good feedback on that. Well, not unbelievable. It's exactly expected from a Honda. 
and I want to quickly check. I'm only going on AutoTrader and I know people will be able to find these cheaper on Facebook Marketplace, for example, but this just gives me a, a decent barometer of where we're at. Honda CB1100. So you've got the Honda CB1100, also looks amazing. And let me just say that as well, if you're looking for either, the CB1100 looks superb. It's just a slightly less sporty version of the RS. So check out the CB1100 because that's every bit as good looking and you can get those easily for four and a half thousand pounds. You know, for a 10 year old model, four and a half thousand pounds of that 1100 engine. If you then click on the CB1100 RS, now that's where it gets a bit more expensive actually. Now that's interesting. There are less of the RSs and the price starts from around about six and a half thousand pounds. So if you're on a slightly tighter budget, I would go for the CB1100. It will also probably be a bit more relaxing as well. But my Lord, that's a nice bike. And I have to say, JB, yeah, that's bang on my zone as well. If we look at the, let's have a look at the horsepower. What is it on the CB 1100 RS? It's got to be about 80, yeah, 88 horsepower. I think you're absolutely spot on with that. This is a bike that is the perfect mix for almost every single situation. It's a big brute of a bike with a big, relatively lazy engine for the size of it, 88 horsepower, but it will be able to on real road situations keep up with pretty much the best of them. And it's got those timeless looks and Honda do modern classics incredibly well. And Honda have a track record of extremely desirable classic motorcycles from the CB lineup. And just that name, the CB 1100. Go back through the years and have a look at some of the classic CBs. It's a good investment, seriously good investment. I'll end it there. JB, thank you. Thank you to everyone who's messaged in. I hope you all have a brilliant week and I'll speak to all of you in the next one.